I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, the Supreme Court heard Mahoney Area School District versus BL, uh, which some have called the most important case involving student free speech in years. Joining us to examine the implication of the case for the First Amendment are two of America's leading experts and advocates on both sides of the case. Francisco Negron, Jr. is the Associate Executive Director and General Counsel of the National School Boards Association. He joined an amicus brief in this case in support of Mahoney Area School District. Uh, Francisco, it is wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. And Will Creeley is the legal director of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Will wrote FIRE's amicus brief in support of the student in this case, whose initials are BL. Will, thank you so much for joining. Jeff, it's a pleasure. I can see the National Constitution Center out my window uh, from my office in Philadelphia, so it's, it's like being home. Well, that is wonderful and will inspire us for the discussion ahead. Uh, let me begin with you, Will. Why is this case important and why have some... Uh, scholars on both sides of the case called this the most important student free speech case in a generation? Well, that's an excellent question, Jeff. And when I've been explaining it to folks, especially folks who are not lawyers like my mother, uh, the way I start is by saying that the Supreme Court doesn't deal with student speech cases very often. Uh, it's been uh, since 2007, uh, since the court has considered the First Amendment rights of uh, students in either the K-12 or the higher ed context in this way. And since 2007, as your listeners may know, there has been a revolution in how students talk to each other. When I st first started defending student free speech rights for fire uh, in 2006, I still had to identify Facebook as popular social network site, facebook.com. And that seems like about three lifetimes ago. So this is the first time the court has grappled uh, with the application of its 1969 landmark uh, free speech case, Tinker v. Des Moines Independent Community School Board uh, to online speech, such as the speech at issue here, a uh, cheerleader's Snapchat posted on the weekend off campus, uh, expressing her frustration with uh, school and life and everything. Uh, Francisco, you represent the National School Boards Association, and uh, you are uh, arguing that the Tinker case, which Will just mentioned, uh, which holds that public officials can regulate speech that would materially and substantially disrupt the work and discipline of the school, should not be cabined simply to speech that takes place on campus, as the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit held. Tell us more why you believe that's important and why that has important implications for uh, free speech in schools. Right, Jeffrey. So, of course, you know that in that famous Tinker case, the Supreme Court actually used the phrase that students don't leave their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. So this case is all about where the schoolhouse gate is. Is it a geographic location? Is it a physical presence? You know, in 1969, when Tinker was decided, that wasn't a question. It was the literal schoolhouse gate. It was students wearing armbands in a classroom. But today, we know that students engage in speech in a variety of ways, and that speech um, happens more and more on the internet through social media platforms, and it finds its way into the school setting, uh, and that's what this case is about. 
uh, we are asking the court in this particular case to look at that Tinker framework um, and help us clarify where that schoolhouse gate lies, because we know that there's lots of issues that are arising for students around speech um, that may be harmful, things around bullying and harassment. And there's an expectation that schools uh, do something about those. All right, the stakes are clear, and thank you both for helping our listeners understand them. Uh, Will, the the Third Circuit um, said that when a student speaks away from campus over the weekend and without school resources and on a social media platform unaffiliated with a school, Tinker does not apply. Uh, Why do you think that rule was correct and that it's important to draw a strict distinction between on and off campus speech in a world of social media? Well, for a number of reasons, Jeff, and that's a a great question. Thank you for it. Uh, First of all, uh, the idea that uh, Tinker uh, should apply off campus is directly contrary to the understanding of the justices in handing down that decision back in 1969. Tinker is a carve out for First Amendment rights. Uh, It's a heightened uh, ability of uh, the government, in this case, public schools, to regulate student speech. And that's because of one reason, that students are uh, in the control uh, of schools, right? They are in in school and they are uh, what the court identified as the special characteristics of the school environment. They're there to be educated, but schools also have a supervisory authority. They're acting in local parentis uh, in place of the parents. When students are no longer in the school environment, uh, be that uh, in the classroom, on campus, on a school trip, in a school-sponsored activity, when they are, as BL was here, uh, hanging out with a friend uh, at a convenience store on a Saturday afternoon, uh, their First Amendment rights are coextensive uh, with the rest of us. Uh, the government uh, had no longer has the power to punish them uh, out of some supervisory authority. At that point, the supervisory authority is back to the parents. Uh, so that is, is the first, I think, kind of doctrinal reason. Uh, the second reason, and, and this may speak again to the high stakes of this case, is the lesson that we teach students about their First Amendment rights. And this is what my brief uh, for uh, FIRE and the National Coalition Against Censorship and the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund really emphasized. If we teach students uh, that their status as a student uh, entitles the government to Uh, put them into a kind of panopticon to be able to see and to monitor and to regulate and indeed punish uh, their speech at all hours of the day. Because as we know, especially during COVID, students speak to each other online, even when they're just expressing simple frustration, which I think all of us can remember being 14 and angry, uh, feeling that way. Uh, If we teach students that that is the long arm of the government, Uh, that there is no refuge for dissenting about school or criticizing school, even in terms that uh, maybe especially in terms that the government uh, and its administrators don't like, we are sending a corrosive, illiberal lesson to a generation of students who will then uh, go on to expect such monitor and perhaps even replicate it. And I think that's very dangerous to the long-term health of our democracy. We can't just talk about the First Amendment rights uh, in uh, civics education and history classes. We have to teach students that they're real. And the best way to do that is to tell students that they possess them and then they can exercise them uh, when they're off campus. And that's, I think, exactly what the Third Circuit's opinion did. Francisco, your brief argues that the Third Circuit's categorical limitation on Tinker is misguided for three reasons, that Tinker has never been strictly confined to on-campus conduct, that a categorical rule is particularly ill-suited for the social media age, and that Tinker limits when schools can regulate disruptive conducts. And then you go on to say the Third Circuit's categorical rule would have 
disastrous consequences. With thanks to you for stating your position so clearly, help our listeners understand each of those points. So I think the most important point out of that, and, and primarily this question about tinker, uh, is an understanding that uh, students' rights around free speech um, can be regulated, certainly when students are in school, um, if they're detrimental or somehow just detract from the educational setting or when they infringe on the rights of others. But, but for us, this case in particular is really about the modern application of Tinker. We all know that we live in a modern world where the use of communication devices through very powerful computers like the cell phones that you and I and everyone carry around is instantaneous. And it's, it's really important to understand that communication now between students doesn't happen in the way that it did in 1969, simply on a playground or at a convenience store around the corner, that for students, virtual reality really is reality. It's a lived experience. Um, and that sometimes that communication happens not only instantaneously, but then is magnified and augmented by the ability to reach a large number of persons. Um, when those messages are targeted to the school environment, uh, to fellow students, then I think there's a responsibility for schools to address that. And for us, the primary concern really turns around questions of bullying and harassment. We know that uh, students, unfortunately, and young people, perhaps because of levels of development and many reasons engage in things like bullying and harassment. And many of them do it on the internet. They do it through social media platforms. And oftentimes they target students and they target the school setting with those messages. And there's an expectation, not only from uh, parents, uh, we are in the place of the parents and local parentis, an expectation from communities, from students themselves, for schools to keep them safe. And, and by the way, not just those three parties, but also state law, which requires schools to, in many jurisdictions, to address questions of bullying and harassment. So there's a really sound operational reason that has to do with making sure kids are safe. And when those messages, you know, regardless of how they're developed or targeted at students through social media, we've seen the tragic consequences and there's an expectation and a responsibility for schools to address that. Will... Your brief argues that both high school and college students routinely face discipline today for expressing political views and exposing potentially dangerous or unhealthy school conditions, as well as uh, speech criticizing teachers using profanity, telling jokes about zombie invasions, taking pictures of toy guns, even quoting the 2004 film Mean Girls. Tell us more about those examples, and would a rule limiting Tinker to on-campus speech dramatically change the landscape and make all of those punishments impossible? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, doing research for this brief, uh, I was both amused and deeply depressed by the extent of the long arm of schools uh, in peering into their newly visible uh, students' speech. And I say newly visible because surely students are saying the same things to each other uh, that they did uh, uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they're just saying it in a way that now school administrators uh, can see and eavesdrop upon. 
So it's uh, interesting, as Justice Gorsuch noted in oral argument, that there's this irony, the more avenues we have for speech, the more avenues uh, there are for censorship and regulation. Yeah, just to to go to some of those examples that you mentioned, Jeff, uh, we have a student who is watching Mean Girls at home on a weekend uh, at her parents' house and tweets a line from the uh, uh, the the movie, not directed at anybody, you know, nothing uh, that wouldn't earn anything above an R rating, and she's suspended. Uh, we have students who are. Um, uh, criticizing teachers saying, I, not by name, but again, off campus on Facebook saying, I wouldn't want to take Spanish taught by a racist, suspended. We have students who are celebrating a snow day with a per- profanity, suspended. So that's the real danger here. And, and uh, Francisco talks about the modern tinker. And I appreciate that point. And, and likewise, uh, Council for Petitioners, Council for Mahanoy Area School District today, uh, Lisa Blatt talked about uh, the fact that Tinker has been applied to off-campus online student speech for 20 years. But I would argue, and I think anybody who cares about First Amendment rights for students would argue that it's been an abject disaster. Uh, school administrators are lost in this nether realm of not really knowing where the schoolhouse gate is, as Francisco said. So I appreciate that, that, uh, that nebulous <laughs> nature of of that task, but also uh, in light of that uncertainty, going ahead and saying, we'll punish first and ask questions later. And into that uh, approach go the speech rights of many students. So uh, yeah, our, our brief is, is, a, is a dark comedy of student censorship. And while it seems funny to say, yeah, this student got suspended for uh, talking about zombies or even BL uh, using a swear word on Snapchat that disappeared 24 hours later, the lesson that it teaches those students lasts a long time. And I was only going off the reports that I could find in the newspaper. I'm sure there are countless other students who, uh, for whatever reason, maybe access to an attorney, maybe family means, maybe uh, just a desire to keep their head down, shut up and, and you know, play it by the book, uh, never get their cases told at all. And that's a tragedy for our civic democracy. Uh, Francisco, Justice Alito also expressed your concern about bullying uh, and asked whether there was anything that a school can do about that. And David Cole for the ACLU said there are bullying codes throughout the country. They're limited to the school environment. And he thinks that schools can punish those who bully uh, in ways that violate a uh, constitutional prohibition on uh, bullying. And the Third Circuit, too, said that you could carve out an exception and allow bullying to be prosecuted under anti-bullying laws rather than under Tinker. What is your response? Yeah, so I think that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, Mr. Cole, a counsel for the student, repeatedly tried to refer to a variety of other laws, including criminal laws, as the appropriate um, vehicle for addressing student behavior. Um, and to, I think, the disbelief of some of the justices, including um, Justice Coney Barrett, who you know, repeatedly questioned him about that. But I, I think the first piece that I would like to make really in response to some, uh, some of the comments that, that Will just made is that, first of all, it's important that parents understand that schools are not interested in being the internet police. And that's not what this case is about. There's a variety of reasons why schools are not interested in being the internet police. And that's, first of all, schools understand that that's not their role. They understand the, 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 the constitutional rights of students. Um, and, and those are, and, and their need to respect them. But more importantly, they're simply not the capacity. So it's not a question of schools being sort of on the prowl um, to seek out individual student commentary that happens outside of school campus. But it really is important for listeners to understand that 
there are communications that are targeted to other students and to the school setting in the way that it was done here. Um, it was not done only um, as a message that was sent to one person, but you know, hundreds of people actually reviewed it. Those are the messages that are, that are of concern. I should point out too that counsel for the student under questioning by Justice Sotomayor um, agreed that for extracurricular activities, for instance, like teams or athletic teams, um, they could impose conditions in advance um, that address student speech regulation, you know, if the students agreed. So it really, uh, I don't know that Mr. Cole had an actual um, appropriate answer, I think a convincing answer to why that simply didn't apply um, in this case. And, you know, one of the things that schools like to do, and I think Justice, um, pardon, uh, Lisa Blatt, the counsel for the school, really did a great job of, of laying out what schools are, are after um, in a case like this one. And she said that, listen, when we're doing something like cheerleading, to be specific, which is the, the extracurricular activity at issue here, um, what we're trying to teach as, as the school is leadership, um, collaboration, teamwork. And when there is this kind of negative messaging that's targeted directly at that team and at that activity, it raises into question whether that student can compete in that way. And I, the example that she gave is this student is now going to be potentially at the bottom of a cheerleading pyramid. And so there's an actual role here for the school to address about, you know, operationally, what is going to be the impact of this speech? And, and, and the authority that gets to make that determination is the school. Thank you so much for that. We'll uh, tell our listeners more about that interesting exchange between Justice Sotomayor and David Cole, as Francisco says, Justice Sotomayor expressed concern about the case of a student, a young girl who goes outside of the house um, and walking to school with a group of classmates walking up and saying, you're ugly, why are you even alive? That's not a true threat, said Justice Sotomayor. They're not threatening her with bodily harm. It's not harassment at all. Under your theory of the case, would the school be powerless? Uh, David Cole conceded that the school could make participation in the extracurricular activity, a condition of not engaging in foul speech on social media, if that was a reasonable condition. Uh, what did you think of that concession? And, and more broadly, what do you make of the fact that Justice Sotomayor and other justices on both sides of the uh, spectrum were concerned about whether speech that was uh, bullying but didn't rise to the level of legal harassment could be regulated? Yeah, let me push push back on the concession point a little bit uh, with regard to conditioning activity uh, or participation in ex extracurricular activities on uh, some kind of team code of conduct. Uh, what I think Mr. Cole and, and uh, the ACLU and the ACLU of Pennsylvania representing BL uh, argued uh, quite clearly, and I, I think very persuasively, is that while the government uh, may condition uh, access to extracurricular participation on certain uh, codes of conduct, including uh, certain codes of conduct that might impact First Amendment protected speech. Uh, those limitations, according to, again, kind of well-established Supreme Court precedent, uh, have to fall by the wayside when it comes to uh, activities outside of that program. That is, you can regulate the cheerleader speech when she is acting as a cheerleader, but that's not what happened in this case. The cheerleader was speaking on a Saturday, off-season. She wasn't wearing her cheerleader uniform. She wasn't uh, talking to... Uh, 
uh, her coach during a practice. Uh, none of those conditions apply. And in a uh, 2013 case, uh, Open Society, uh, the Supreme Court made very clear that you cannot uh, require, you know, condition participation on this kind of broad-based waiver that goes beyond the four corners of the program, uh, the government program you're trying to participate in. So that, that's the first point. And second of all, uh, with regard to bullying, uh, this was a, a, a discussion that, that permeated the entire uh, oral argument, as one might expect it would. Uh, but two points on that. First of all, the Third Circuit's opinion uh, very clearly reserved uh, the question of bullying and harassment. They, what the Third Circuit said, and this is important, was that Tinker, which is, again, a, a, uh, a, redu- a heightened authority for the government to censor speech or to regulate student speech on campus, should not apply to off-campus speech. That's important. What Mr. Cole and the ACLU and what, what my organization, FIRE, would argue is that there are, a ways, uh, there are ways of addressing bullying, harassment of the type contemplated by Justice Sotomayor and others uh, that are permissible under the First Amendment that don't require schools to use the broad uh, brush of tinker, which only requires the showing of substantial disruption or invasion of another student's rights uh, to regulate. There are constitutional harassment standards. There are constitutional bullying standards. Schools may use those. The authorities may use those when a student is off campus. That's legitimate and permissible. But we can't allow schools to just uh, apply tinker and wave their hands and say, this is a substantial disruption, uh, or it's reasonably foreseeable that there would be substantial disruption here. And uh, however noble uh, and necessary the impulse of fighting bullying is, we can't allow that to subsume students' First Amendment rights, like what happened to here to BL. Francisco, Justice Kagan asked about the Biden administration's test, which was uh, a sort of moderate compromise. And as Justice Kagan put it, the test says that there's a distinction between in school and out of school, and we can't punish anyone for wearing a Confederate T-shirt outside of school. But once the outside of school speech is really about the school and affects the operation of the school, then Tinker applies. Uh, do you support that test and how would it work in practice? Sure, I think that's a that's that's an application of actually of the the tinker test that has been applied by many school districts to date. And one of the important things to understand about you know the wearing of the t-shirt is that in some schools wearing a Confederate t-shirt may be of no consequence whatsoever, um, but in others it may it may uh, there may be a situation where there have been uh, racial tensions. Uh, and and for perhaps that the wearing of that shirt is inflammatory, and there's indicators that would suggest that there would be um, student fights or violence or outbursts in some way. So th- this is the importance of the need for flexibility, um, because the context is um, absolutely, I think, important in this case. But I'd like to go back to I think the point that I started out with, which really bears mentioning, which is that. This case is really about um, tinker in the modern age, in the age of social media and the way that students really engage in conversation. And I have to say, I was surprised um, to hear Justice Thomas so clearly articulated oral argument that issue when he said, you know, asking Mr. Cole, the advocate for the student, you know, when speech actually occurs. Is it when it's written? Again, not, not spoken here, but when it's written, as in a text in a Snapchat, or when it's read. Um, and, of course, the advocate very clearly speaking about the fact that it what matters is when it's written and where it's written. But that really belies the reality of how students engage and communicate. The reality is that cell phones are all over schools. 
Um, many parents demand that students, for safety reasons, have access to them. So we know that this is actually happening in schools, and schools need a very real-time basis uh, to be able to keep kids safe, particularly when we're talking about um, bullying and harassing speech. Um, I think also that there was a, a great concession um, that was made by the advocate for the student about the ability of schools to engage in some sort of you know, preemptive regulation. Um, and I think there was a concession about that, that that in fact could happen. Um, the question that Justice Thomas asked, again, in a very uncharacteristic fashion, um, because he tends to be the quiet one, is, is what was reasonable. And Mr. Cole, going to that point about um, there have to be this very real indicators. But Justice Breyer came back with that, Jeffrey, and he said, you know, the reality is, it's important to know that Justice Breyer's, I think, father was actually a school board member in San Francisco, so he understands a little bit about how these work. So it's not surprising to hear him quote a superintendent um, who's actually talking about the, the socialization function of a school district and that superintendent saying, listen, this isn't just about classical subjects and teaching those, um, but about all of the other things that happen around making sure kids are appropriate and learning how to be productive citizens. So all of that just to emphasize that the conversation is not really about denying student speech, but about making sure that the educational mission can go forward. That's the real interest. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for noting that Justice Breyer's uh, father was indeed a school official. And Justice Breyer at the oral argument said, I'm frightened to death of writing a standard, a concern that was echoed by other uh, justices. Um, Will, uh, a bunch of points on the table. First, I wonder what you think of the Solicitor General's test that when speech takes place out of school, it can be regulated if it's about the school and affects the operation of the school. David Cole called that the biggest test that's been put before you and said it'd be hard to apply. Uh, and what do you think of Justice Thomas's questions about where speech occurs? And, and broadly tell us, I, I, I gather you think because social media is so pervasive, that's a ground for establishing firmer free speech protections, not uh, more flexible ones. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I very much think that, again, the the history of the past 20 years of student speech rights, uh, schools have struggled to uh, regulate online uh, student speech has only been matched by uh, the, the the meandering and, and deeply frustrating response by courts. It's been a jurisprudential desert for 20 years. Uh, different courts have applied different circuits, and frankly, the Eighth Circuit, uh, in a court in a case that uh, your listeners may remember from a few years ago, involving a high school uh, students uh, uploading to YouTube a rap song that blew the whistle on uh, alleged sexual harassment by uh, two physical education student uh, teachers of uh, of female uh, students. Uh, and, this, and the Eighth Circuit, uh, in a very strange en banc decision, said, uh, we don't really, we won't, we won't apply a, a tinker standard to off-campus speech. We're just going to say that this is punishable. And that leaves students and administrators with no guidance as to what, uh, what is or isn't crossed the line. There's this consistent questioning from the judges, to, uh, justices today uh, as to what the line is. Uh, and I, I think that uh, the United States' position, the uh, Deputy Acting Solicitor General's uh, answers uh, in response to questioning from Justice Kagan were really uh, illustrative of that point. She asked, uh, is this school speech? Is, the, is BLM?
sell speech, school speech? Uh, does it have a sufficient nexus to school? Is it sufficiently targeted at school uh, to be regulated as school speech? And he said, yes, it falls on school speech. So she, she said, well, that means everything is school speech, right? Because this is pretty generic. And she gave him a series of tests, said, what if a student emails answers to another student? And he said, school speech. Student emails other school, students uh, that they should skip, school speech. Student emails that they should refuse homework until they change uh, the curriculum to be more inclusive, school speech. Student tweets that there is pervasive homophobia at a public school and other students should not go to that school, school speech. Even if a student just tweets that his school, quote, really stinks and students should stay away, that also qualifies as school speech. So under the United States test here, a student who is complaining about homophobia at his public school, on Twitter, off campus, uh, in his own time, uh, that speech is sufficiently related to school that it could be regulated. That cannot be the rule. And I take, again, uh, uh, Francisco's uh, useful points about the need for uh, schools to be involved, but it has to be consistent with the First Amendment because just as they are shaping uh, students, they are inculcating students in the values of, uh, of citizenship, uh, to use uh, one of the court's phrases from a, a 1980 school speech, uh, so too are they inculcating the students the value of the First Amendment. And again, if everything is school speech, if every time a student talks about where they spend most of their waking hours <laughs> to friends uh, is, is regulated, uh, is sufficient, uh, subject to regulation by the government, uh, we are teaching students a disastrous lesson about government power uh, and teaching them that their First Amendment rights are illusory uh, and uh, will not uh, protect them against uh, punishment for dissent. Francisco, what did you hear in the argument about the justice's concerns about the regulation of political and religious speech under Tinker? Chief Justice Roberts asked Lisa Blatt, you've said schools can't regulate political or religious speech. They can regulate speech from off campus that's directed at the school. What do you do with political or religious speech that's directed at the school? Signs that students are carrying around off campus that say they don't approve the school bond funding referendum. T tell us about uh, the responses and, and why you think that Tinker uh, is sufficient to protect political and religious speech. Right. I think um, actually Lisa Black, uh, counsel for the school, was was quite clear that we're not talking about schools' ability to regulate political and religious speech, which um, she made quite clear was protected. Um, and what was not at issue in this case, there's a number of questions around that. Um, I think even Justice Alito expanding it beyond religious political to include moral speech. And sort of just one nuance to what Will just said, that in response uh, from the government, from the Solicitor General, to the question about uh, the homophobia speech, it, the, actually what the solicitor said is he parsed it. He said, well, the first part of that question is a political speech because it's, you know, there's homophobia. But then the second piece that um, had to do with sort of a, a personal action of the student, that part could be regulated. So um, even the government recognized that um, there's that just sacrosanct protection for political um, and uh, religious speech. I think that for school districts, and really what we saw the court doing here was really trying to get their head around this whole notion of what a test should be if they're going to rewrite one here. And I really love what uh, Lisa Blatt said to the court, which is that um, what the Seventh Circuit does with all of its you know, tests for, you know, the location is its school speech, and then its sub-series of tests, that it creates this Frankenstein-like mashup, right? Mashup being my word, although she used the word mashed. 
Um, and, and it reminds us of, of the difficulty with it. And I think Justice Coney Barrett here, particularly, you know, catching on to that phrase and talking about the fact that, you know, are we really expecting school districts to have this kind of level of constitutional discernment um, that even, you know, in this court, the justices were, were befuddled by? And I think that goes to the whole question of what do these rules ultimately mean? What we want is what we want is for schools to be safe. We want the ability to have schools be able to act um, and respond to threats of bullying and harassment. Um, those are the real pieces that are at issue here. And what we would hope is that ultimately an opinion of this court doesn't paint so broad that it restricts the ability to do that. Uh, Will, uh, did you hear a single justice uh, who was clearly sympathetic to the Third Circuit test? Uh, who was most sympathetic to it? And given the fact that many of the justices seem to be grappling for some kind of narrower ruling, what kind of narrower ruling could you imagine them converting around? Sure. I, you know, I think uh, the student's uh, case received uh, surprisingly warm reception uh, from my ears. I thought there was a deep degree of skepticism among the justices, and I would say appropriately deep, uh, as to Ms. Blatt's argument uh, in favor of the school. Uh, Justice Barrett said that she may have good policy reasons, but certainly is not doctrinally supported. Uh, a number of justices pushed her as to uh, how the uh, lower courts and school administrators could be expected to apply a, a test that carved out space for quote-unquote political or religious speech, uh, but but did not uh, address the kind of speech that they were concerned about uh, students being punished for that we documented in our brief. So uh, I, I, I'm a lousy prognosticator, Jeffrey, so I won't uh, hazard a guess uh, only to have folks remind me on Twitter just how wrong I was, but I left this uh, oral argument feeling better than I did when I went into it. Uh, and I think there was a, a noted appreciation for the high stakes for student speech rights uh, on behalf of the justices, both in their questioning of, uh, of Ms. Blatt for uh, the school district and also in the questioning of the Solicitor General and Mr. Cole for the student. I will say that one, to your question as to a narrower test, there was an illuminating exchange between Justice Alito uh, and, and Mr. Cole, uh, legal director for the ACLU, for the student, where he... <laughs> He said uh, there's a big gap between the broad free speech issues that we're talking about in the particular instance in this case. If we're going to address broad rules, we need a clear line. If we want to dispose of the case without addressing those issues, could we simply say that Tinker applies in school? Uh, we look at the comments made here and what they substantively boil down to is a student saying she doesn't like the, her school. Uh, and we simply rule that a school can't discipline a student for off-campus speech that doesn't do anything more than say, I hate the school. And Mr. Cole very artfully said, well, we'd be very satisfied if you dismiss this case as improvidently granted, uh, or whether you say that under no conceivable test this could be punished. And I, I, I agree. So we may see a narrow ruling like that because I do think there is uh, quite a bit of, uh, again, very warranted skepticism as to uh, a broad-based expansion of t Tinker uh, and it's, it is a very blunt instrument to regulate speech uh, to off-campus student speech and what that might sweep in. Thank you for that. Uh, Francisco, same question to you without uh, predicting. Uh, which justices did you hear as being most uh, supportive of the Third Circuit test? Justice Barrett did indeed say that uh, you may have good policy reasons for extending Tinker outside the school environment, but she didn't see a lot of doctrinal support for that. And uh, 
after giving us a sense of the different positions that you heard on the court, what kind of narrower ruling could you imagine? Well, I'm going to uh, go out on a limb here and agree completely with uh, Will that um, neither of us should look into a crystal ball and predict the outcome uh, because that, I think, is, is one sure way to lose uh, one's credibility. Um, but I, I would say this. I think I, I also agree that there was uh, a skepticism from the justices uh, about the punishment issued here, the discipline that was issued here. Um, but, but I heard that almost as a question of degree, separate and apart from the question of the ability to regulate some kind of speech. And, you know, the, the other side of this is that I heard a clear recognition of um, the importance of uh, addressing comments that were threatening, that were harassing, that were bullying, and certainly concessions from uh, Mr. Cole on behalf of the student um, about the importance of that, although, of course, he would use a different mechanism to, to allow the school to get to those. But I think that, um, again, not going to predict, but certainly I heard questions of degree uh, about proportionality of the punishment, certainly coming from Justice Kavanaugh, um, and whether that was the appropriate uh, route to take. But then also dialing that back and Justice Kavanaugh himself saying, but I wasn't there, right? And that's really the historic and traditional uh, recognition of, of the deference that courts um, have extended to educators. And they should rightfully do that because um, the education of young people is no small feat. We're talking about different levels of development, different ages, um, of course, different experiences in life. There's a whole conversation, that whole colloquy about, you know, the student being five years old and reacting, you know, to a threat in a certain way, perceiving a threat. A five-year-old might perceive something as a threat where a 12-year-old might not. That's part of identifying sort of the, the individuality, the extreme individuality that's at, at play in these cases and why the court should defer. So we're hoping that, that it heads that way. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this excellent conversation. And the first one is to you. Will, please tell We the People listeners why this case is important and why they should care about it. Absolutely. Well, in 1969, the Supreme Court made clear that students don't check their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gates. And that animating concern for student speech rights should be reaffirmed by the court here to make clear that students don't uh, lose their First Amendment rights when they log on to social media uh, on a Saturday afternoon to talk to their friends either. Uh, if the court rules in favor of the school district, I really fear that what we will see, uh, and I know this from having looked at the uh, uh, local newspapers from across the country for the past 20 years, that student speech that is political, that is dissenting, that is uh, crude in a way that adults don't like, as it often may be, uh, will be punished. And those students will be taught a terrible lesson about what the First Amendment is in actuality. And to avoid that result, to make clear that students retain the right to debate, to criticize, to offend, uh, to joke, uh, the student uh, speech uh, at issue here needs to be found protected. And the court should clarify that Tinker and its uh, grant of the government with increased surveillance powers over student speech because of the special characteristics of the school environment does not extend often to the ether uh, to cover students uh, no matter where they are 24-7, no matter where they are in the country. Uh, if we need some clarity from the Supreme Court, otherwise we'll see more censorship. So here's hoping for a good result.
Thank you so much for that. Francisco, the last word is to you. Why is this case important and why should we, the people, listeners, care about it? So listeners should care about this case because schools have an obligation and an opportunity to ensure that students are safe, students that are in their custody during the school day and during school activities. And we know that the reality of the way that students communicates now is a lot more expansive than it did in 1969 when Tinker was first decided. Students now experience reality, not as virtual reality, but as lived experiences, actual reality. And so it's time for the court to take notice of that uh, and really extend those coverages to the school district so that the school district can continue on its mission to make sure that children are safe, those children within its care, particularly when we're talking about questions of bullying and harassment. Thank you so much, Will Creeley and Francisco Negron, for a concise, illuminating, and comprehensive discussion of the constitutional stakes in the extremely important First Amendment case, Mahoney Area School District versus EL. Francisco, Will, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Lana Ulrich, and Anna Salvatore, who were thrilled to welcome to the NCC from her great stint as the founder of high school SCOTUS blog. The homework of the week, please read Judge Krause's opinion for the Third Circuit in this case, and write to me and tell me whether or not you agree with it on constitutional grounds. And also, please rate, review, and subscribe to With the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who is hungry and eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate and who among us is not. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from around the country. We're inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. You can express uh, support for the mission by writing to me and tell me what you think of the show and how we can do better. Or you can give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.